stay hungry, stay foolish. We have a copy of Hidden Truths by David Fubini up for grabs. Just sign up for the Innovation Show.io newsletter and you will be in the hat to win a copy of that book. Highly, highly recommend it. Before we launch into that episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling customers to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Today's episode provides practical knowledge that will not only help leaders do their jobs better, but will assist boards, HR, consultants, and others in working effectively with these executives. One of the book's themes is that appearance is not reality. Much has been written and discussed about the apparent roles and responsibilities of CEOs and managing directors and other leaders. Courses are taught in MBA and executive development programs that provide a lot of information about the job, direct reports, and teams also observe leaders in action. But it's not until you assume a leadership position that the reality of the position hits home. The reality is that leaders operate in a crucible, one in which emotions run high and interpersonal relationships are at risk. Being in the spotlight, not having nearly enough hours in the day to address key issues, confronting right versus right decisions, all of this ratchets up the degree of difficulty. The good news is that our guest today and his book delivers a crucial awareness about critical capabilities and issues that come with the territory. He presents essential skills that will keep leaders at the top of their game and deliver success, both professionally and within their organizations. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Hidden Truths, What Leaders Need to Hear But Are Rarely Told, David Fubini. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me, and thank you for that incredibly kind introduction. It is such a gem of a book, and I was so happy to come across it, and I'm so grateful for you to come on to the show. We only have an hour together today. We could do 30 or more, and I would enjoy every second of it. But let's get into it, David. I thought before we share and start to explore some of the hidden truths, I thought we'd start with some context to share your story. And although I gave that introduction, why this book? And I've selected a little excerpt to tee you up, and I'd love you to expand upon. You said, since retiring as a senior partner at McKinsey to teach at the Harvard Business School, I've become familiar with the advice offered in business books and articles to help leaders. I must admit that many of these works have left me a bit disappointed. While their authors offer interesting insights, they do so from a vantage point that doesn't seem to reflect the reality and practical aspects of CEOs' daily lives, lives that I have observed firsthand. First of all, context, I think it's important because uh, you, and you offer me the opportunity. Let me just quickly tell you that I uh, started out my life as a horrible student. I mean, just embarrassingly poor student, in part because my grandfather is a famous Italian mathematician for which there's some very famous theorem named after him. Your listeners, are, uh, would, if they've ever studied math, would know what I speak about. I do not. That's one indication of my lack. Of, uh, my father, though, was an Italian-born uh, uh, theoretical physicist. And then uh, source, and then we, uh, he had uh, six children, of which I have five sisters, all of whom are brilliant and smarter than I am and more professional than I am. 
So I've always been a student of trying to understand and learn from others who are smarter and more adept and more adaptive and frankly more uh, more successful than myself. So when I so that's a little bit of where the sort of roots of where I come from. So eventually, after Harvard Business School, I found my way to, to McKinsey. Unlike most of my students who think they'll stay for three years, I, I ended up staying for 34 years. And so here I am back at Harvard again. Uh, but to the question you asked, yes, you read a lot of leadership books, as I seek to do to learn and get and improve. And you realize that many of these uh, books, they're terrific because they're a summary of one person's lives and journey and what they have experienced. But very little collective sense has ever been created. And that's when I sat, sat back and said, well, wouldn't it be great if we collected the collective view of what CEOs and leaders experience rather than the individual view that you get from reading generally the leadership books by former executives? And so it was my you know, desire to try and summarize that. Uh, and that's how come the book came to be born. Um, and I, I was mindful of the fact that and let's be clear to your listeners, I've never been a CEO. I've never been a, the thing. I, I The most leadership I ever had was to run the Boston office of McKinsey and our merger practice globally. But anybody who's run a professional service firm knows that that's really, you don't really run anything. You you largely plead and try and, you know, shepherd some people around towards a common objective and hope they follow. That's not what we're speaking about here. Um, but I, you know, I, I think the point is that this was a chance to really um, understand what CEOs uh, were experiencing in real life. I went back and did a lot of interviews. I would take the table of contents and say, does this resonate for you? And they would say, oh, incredible. I mean, that one is really important. And they'd always point at something different. And so I knew I was onto something. So that's how the book got born. And I wanted to just draw a little nice red thread. It only goes up the hall from you there, David, in the Harvard Business School to a great friend of the show and one of our most popular episodes ever with your friend and friend of the show, Hubert Jolie. Let's tell our audience a little bit about your connection there. Hubert and I worked at McKinsey for a, a, you know, a long time, overlapped for a good deal of time. Um, we only knew of each other reputationally because uh, he, working primarily in Europe, me uh, working primarily outside of Europe, uh, didn't really have a lot of interaction. But McKinsey has a way of evaluating uh, uh, senior partners that requires us to basically have somebody from outside our region come in and get to know you and understand you and evaluate how well you're doing on behalf of the firm. Uh, I had the great uh, honor to actually be the person that was Hubert Jolie's evaluator in that context, and we got to know each other as, as a result. And so, my, you know, it's unusual to have a relationship born out of one where you're being evaluated by that person, but indeed we struck up a relationship he obviously went on to greatness at Carlson and then at uh, Best Buy. And uh, when he was thinking about what to do after Best Buy, working with several faculty colleagues here, um, we had several conversations about what the reality was of teaching here at Harvard Business School, because by that time I'd been here for several years. And um, I was thrilled to have him come join uh, me and others on the faculty. And we have had a wonderful set of collaborations ever since. I was telling you, uh, great. Another friend of the show is also uh, your McKinsey alumni, your McKinsey brethren. It's a guy called Charles Kahn and his book, uh, Bulletproof Problem Solving. And I was struck always by the humility of people who work in McKinsey and the willingness to call things out, to call out the 
the unspoken truths. And usually, David, I wear a pin to reflect the show, but it's so warm over here. I don't know what it's like for you, but it's warmer than it's the warmest day ever. The day I'm recording here in Ireland that, oh, in history. And that's not a good thing, obviously, with the planet, because uh, we don't know where that's going. But I, the pin I, I chose was I'm going to hold it up to the camera there. Hopefully you can see it. It's, it's a it's a monkey covering their mouth, as in speak no evil. <laughs> and I was like, that's perfect for what David's talking about here. Before we get into those unspoken truths, or hidden truths, I want to talk about the dual transformation or adaptation that takes place when a leader assumes a new office. And I, I, I think people in organizations, we often hold the CEO in a, a kind of a hero like scaffolding where we think, oh, look, look at them They're They don't have the same problems we do. They're human beings. And they have to first adjust to the role if they haven't been CEO before. And even if they have changing company or even getting hired from within is a huge challenge and huge adjustments. But then the other one is the adjustment of the organization to their leadership style. So I'd love you to riff on that one, David. One of the things that you find out when you talk to the new leaders is that all the things that they did to work through a career path created lots of um, wonderful financial as well as operational results for their company. You know, they learned how to you know, uh, run a team and how to, you know, meet a, a budget and then how to succeed and, you know, then how to run multiple businesses and the business units and learn to be a strategic business unit head and do all that. Um, all that skill set when you become the leader of an organization is pretty much not helpful. You know, it's like, oh my God, I have to learn an entirely new you know, set of skills and abilities. And I actually have to have a totally different mindset because as, as a leader, uh, you know, of, of any entity, you are really having to now influence people and to drive them uh, towards a common objective and, and do so at a certain pace. And you don't, really have, even though you're the leader, the direct line of responsibility to be able to say, go do this, um, because that didn't become a dictator and in most dictatorial um, you know, roles, uh, leadership uh, uh, activity is short-lived. And so the, the first big challenge is, oh my heavens, all that I, would, uh, I was good at I, I, is not going to help me in my new job. So that's really the first thing. The second thing to your point is that because the institution is so used to having being leader led, it's like terrific. Here, here she is, or he, uh, here they are. We're ready. Tell us what to do. And so it's like, wow! I suddenly now I'm being I'm ex being expected to know all, see all, and speak about all the issues I have to. We all have to face together. And I'm just I'm new to the role, you know. And it's hard to say, give me a little bit of time, um, even though. It would be certainly welcomed in certain settings for that to happen. There's a sense of no, no. I'm, I'm the big, I'm the big dog now. I have to be the, the, the loudest voice, and she or he suddenly jumps in, and that's where issues arise. So it's that that that's the trade-off that you're referring to, and that happens a lot. And you mentioned a key word there for newly minted CEOs or leaders in any sense is. It's like I, I use over there when I'm reading, David, I use the Pomodoro technique, one of your fellow countrymen, uh, Federico Cirillo created this technique of learning the 25 minutes and I have a sand timer, that's 25 minutes. And I was reading when I was reading about this chapter, I had it on, I was like, oh, hang on, that's exactly what happens to CEOs. 
you know there's a one of your your fellow harvard authors uh, um wrote a book about the first 90 days or a presidency the first 100 days you say you do not have that luxury of time anymore and oftentimes when you see a ceo for example having gardening leave gardening leave between roles you're like they they bloody well need that time to prepare and this is a huge part you don't have the luxury to figure things out when you arrive in the role anymore boards are impatient employees are impatient impatient you don't have time to go and sit with the mckinsey's and come up with a strate- strategic plan to reveal to the organization you got to hit the ground running it's incredibly important and one of the things is i walked around and asked uh, leaders, uh, you know, which of the book's chapters resonate. One of them that they pointed to is just this one, which is, you are so right. The pace and expectation of change has changed, is, is shortened dramatically in this decade than previous decades. Part of it is, look at, you sit on boards. Uh, I sit on boards of directors now. It used to be that it would be a failure of the board if you had to fire your CEO. Unfortunately, the way the world has evolved, it's no longer considered a failure if you fire your CEO. Some, in some cases, it's viewed as, look it, they're taking a strong stance, they're being a realist, they're moving on, they understand the issue. So even the boards themselves have less patience anymore. Certainly, the, you know, the investors have less patience because everybody cares about quarter to quarter. Activism has been a big change here because you have activists who will look at every, every report, anytime you have cash that is a certain accumulation relative to your results, they're going to say, oh, let's go take a position. So you're worried about activists. And we haven't even started to talk about employees who are basically saying, please lead us. So it's the intensity is great there. Um, an example of, of, of the negative side of it, and I, I mentioned this in the book, is that, and this is well known, you know, GE, when Immelt moved away from being CEO, the new CEO came in. Um, and he, he said, look it, I need some time to sort out the strategy for GE. And well understood because by God, it is a massive company and serious challenges um, around. And the stock you know, plummeted uh, you know, for the day, it was down like five or 7%. And there, stories were being written about, wow, the CEO really, is he up for the job? You know, can we really trust him? The investors were saying, whoa, we're a little concerned. You know, and you contrast that to a decade, two decades ago, you know, um, Lou Gerstner took over IBM and said, I have no strategy. And they all applauded. Everybody applauded. So that the world is entirely different now. You know? So you, you have to arrive prepared. One of the key points you make in this chapter is that you say CEOs, and I, I found this actually interesting for anybody going for an interview role, oftentimes we feel like the recipient of questions, but we should be using that in a way to mine for information, to be curious, to find out what the territory is like, not the map. And one of the things you say is CEOs must use the interview phase as due diligence on the issues and needed operational changes, listening carefully and thoughtfully, even while interviewing for the role is a critical skill and one that is too often ignored in a rush to impress. And you give a great example again in the book. And I I love, by the way, your examples. And this shows the diversity of people you've met. You spent a lot of time, for example, with Jack Welch that you tell us in the book, but also with CEOs as a CEO whisperer or an advisor or trusted advisor. And that brings a whole different perspective than the CEO, as you say, is often 
writing these books from a survivorship bias perspective, which totally misses so many important uh, and, and latent points. But you give the example of Roger Crone, former CEO of Boeing, and then Lidos. I'd love you to share how he made the transition. Just to contextualize this, I'm on the Lidos board. We're, we're, we're looking for a CEO. We know we're going to uh, we're contrasting an insider candidate with an outsider candidate, Roger Crone, um, uh, who at the time I wasn't CEO of Boeing. He was the CEO of the uh, Boeing's defense business and uh, very a former CFO of all Boeing and a very accomplished uh, man. So, so he arrives, and then I don't think Roger would mind my saying this because he's had such a wonderful career. Because obviously he ends up getting this job, and he's had an enormous success. But he had a very bad first interview. Um, and, it, and it was really disturbing. And so a number of us on the board said, well, wow, we really think this is somebody we really need to hear more from. And so one of the things we went back and we suggested to Roger is he do more homework than he may have had the chance to do before. And he went back and he did a lot more homework. He worked with um, you know, uh, some family investment bankers to actually uh, get a better sense of where the strategy should follow through. He um, actually worked with some, he talked to several competitors he talked to a few other board members, and he actually arrived with a plan at the next interview. And, and rather than having, you know, sort of a, a question answer, he, said, he more sort of said, look, and here's the plan I would execute um, as best I know it today. Obviously, I don't have perfect information, but let's have a dialogue about whether or not this feels comfortable to you. And that's the second thing that's really important in these interviews is that it has to be a dialogue. If it's a, if it's a question and answer session, it's a problem. So Roger really used a huge number of assets to arrive prepared, um, and as a result, ends up being selected and being a terrific uh, CEO with a wonderful track record. Let's share some solutions and some questions that you proposed to ask. And I loved what you said here. This will just tee up the problem. A newly promoted CEO said this to you. I thought I saw the whole chessboard. Then I took the job and realized what I was actually seeing was only a small portion of what turns out to be a three dimensional chessboard with fully half of the board hidden from my view, which actually sums up the real problem here. Because the when you're being hired as well, we have this theater success theater of we are a great company, come join us, etc. All the warts are hidden oftentimes for to try and attract people in every job does that it's like a first date. <laughs> and you suggest some questions and some actions that a CEO can take before they even consider such a role. First is that, as you've just suggested, there's no situation that you enter that you're going to have perfect information. And you should assume, because it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's always going to be there. It's almost a given that there are challenges that are deeper and, and more robust than you may actually be able to visualize and see. And you need to ask about those. And it's rare, um, you know, for uh, those who are seeking a, a leadership role to say, tell me what it is that you're not telling me. Uh, tell me what it is that are, is the most troublesome aspect uh, over the last six months for what you've achieved, you know, that you're uh, having to work on as an institution, as an executive team, as a board. You know, you have to ask those questions, presuming that there are challenges rather than asking for challenges. If you ask for challenges, you're going to get pavel. But be presumptive to say, look, I know there's challenges. Let's talk about them. It's an entirely different way to approach the question. So that's the first thing you have to do. The second is to make sure that you are not just dealing with 
the sort of the financial um, and operational issues, uh, because those are pretty much well known in today's world, um, you know, between all the analyst communities and all third parties who look at most public companies or even some private companies, much of that is known. What you really wanted to get at is the texture of the, of the institution. Tell me how you make decisions. Tell me what's, you know, what is, what's the culture in the, and not just culture, because that, that, that term gets thrown around for so many different things, but how do we, what's important here? You know, what, you know, what, what are the key processes that we actually every month need to be great at to be successful? Those are questions that rarely get asked. If you ask those questions, you'll learn more about the organization than you would otherwise. Third is you have to talk to lots of people, uh, much like Roger did. Go to the friendly investment banker. I assure you, they'll be helpful because they'll want your business after you become CEO. Go to McKinsey. I assure you, they desperately want to help you when you become CEO. They will help you, um, you know, or, you know, Bain, BCG, Deloitte, your favorite consulting firm, go and spend time with, um, you know, those who are industry practice leaders in the industry you're going to. Tell me what I need to know about this company. If you have, uh, if you have colleagues who used to serve, uh, you know, uh, supply and or be a, a customer of that, that entity, go talk to them. And I have to tell you, it's a hard work and much as Roger found out. And I think you have to do that. And it's hard to do that um, because people want to say, well, look what I got told. The situation that you described, this, this particular individual spent almost three weeks doing analysis uh, of the company. And still, when he arrived, he was shocked to find that the operational and manufacturing supply chain was seriously broken. He's, and he, he kicked himself. He said it was really not a key element of the, his due diligence and he paid the price. Um, but also the board failed in not exposing that to him. The headhunter uh, search firm failed in not sort of exposing that to him. And so everybody's at fault. You talked about something that was really interesting. I thought we'd share because I wanted to share this with all our audience, no matter what level of a company you're in. And hopefully we'll get to talking about mentorship later on. But even when we were talking there, there was many people we knew in common. Because the more people you know, in a network, the more nodes of the network connect. And it's such an essential skill. And one of the first CEOs I worked under, he told me, don't spend all your time in the office, get out there. You know, like Steve Blank would say in uh, entrepreneurship, get out of the building. It's such a crucial part to meet people, build networks. Because later on, for example, when you're a CEO, you tell us, you need to tap that network because you'll get truths there that you won't hear anywhere else. Oh, absolutely. Well, the first of all is that um, uh, there's several reasons you want to get out there. One is to build your personal network. And one of the things you'll find out is uh, other CEOs, uh, and this is something we might come back and talk about, are pretty isolated. And, and so they, they really do enjoy talking to other leaders because there's a shared interest there. There's a shared learning. It's one of the great things you learn about Harvard is one of the great powers you have in an institution like Harvard is that you can convene, you know, groups of people who otherwise wouldn't be convened and they come together and they have a spectacular time, not because we're actually brilliant faculty, but to get leaders to do that is really hard, uh, in part because it's exposing, because they are sort of saying, I don't know everything, tell me what I need to know. That's very exposing for CEOs. Two, they can always, always use the excuse of time because they never have it. Uh, so that's part of the other challenge here. And three, they really don't know what will be the effect of having asked to talk to somebody because they're like, well, 
are they going to somehow talk to other people? And I, I, it's probably better if I don't do it. They just write scenarios that are negative. So my, my role often was to say, no, this will be great. You know, and let me tell you, I know these people, you know, this is a relationship you'll, you'll, you'll value, not just on the question at hand, but the questions that will follow. It's really difficult though. So one, just getting CEOs to do that is, is challenging. The second thing is also to say to them, look at when you role model by walking around, oh, it's incredibly powerful. And CEOs will say, oh, nobody cares. And I say, no, 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 you don't understand. Every day, what you want, what you do is watched by many, many people. So, you know, so use that. It's an incredible tool and it's underused. And it's and it's certainly something that isn't well understood. And again, CEOs have all the reasons to say, oh, I don't want to do that because I, you know, I have to go be exposed. And the best CEOs are the people who would say, look, I learned the most from the, the individual who was assigned to drive me around from plant to plant. You know, I learned more from the driver you know, than the presentations at the plant because they're open, they're candid, and they're probably junior. My God, that's a gift. Take it, use it. Uh, and very few people do that. So it's a little bit of openness, willingness to put yourself at risk and an assumptive behavior that you're going to really get really feedback from your CEOs that you like. There's an interesting thing, though. I was thinking about how, and thankfully, the, the world's changing, but that whole idea of the leader, the Gordon Gecko in Wall Street type, powerful, strong, not a very nice person, never smiles. And you, you even see this, you know, I've, I've noticed this when a lot of people do photo shoots, the, the CEO will often go, do I smile or not? Should I not, etc? What does that portray? And the reason I'm saying that is, even though that seems trivial, is that in the past, a leader showing any kind of weakness, like I have no strategy, like you mentioned, was actually attacked there was snakes in the grass there were snipers on the roofs they were out to undermine that ceo as well so it leaves newly minted ceos in a weird position they don't know how to act and i think this is an important point um that is a red thread through the through the whole book and it's because it's certainly a lived experience and it's something i've been reading more about um which is empathy is an incredibly powerful tool for leadership and grossly undervalued and you can show empathy by showing vulnerability. And most leaders do not see that connection. And I'd urge them to go back and rethink that. You know, th the best way to get people to sort of want to be drawn to you is to say, I don't know, help me. Or, you know, you know tell me what you know, because I need to understand it. Any reach out which shows vulnerability, empathy, leaders, you know, benefit from that. And, and unfortunately, it's a little bit more like old school. No, you know, I have to be the strong and dominant force here. And uh, while I may not know all, follow me anyhow. And that that's old. That's old. And so empathy is something that we really need to see more of in our leaders. And we'll talk later on, hopefully, probably in the next session that we do together about boards as well, because that has to be reflected downwards as well and upwards. Entirely. This is certainly... One of the great, I think, broken relationships in, in the corporation um, is that one between board and leader. I'm going to hold up my little pin here of the, <laughs> of the monkey covering its mouth because this is what we're going to talk about next. So you've gone through all your due diligence. You've followed David's book. You've done all his checklist in chapter one. You've got the role. Now, maybe you've been hired from within. You think, oh, I have tentacles throughout the organization. I have sensors everywhere. People will tell me what's going on on the floor. 
uh-uh, that is not the truth anymore. As soon as you take that office, it gets very, very lonely. People stop telling you what's really going on. And this is a massive challenge. And this, for me, is one of the biggest takeaways from the book. I really love this uh, little story that Admiral Srivitas, who uh, formerly was the head of the Fletcher School of Management here in, at Tufts University, and I got to know him as a result of that. Uh, previously was the NATO commander and now is at Carlisle. And, um, but, you know, he, he, the former NATO commander, he said, listen, David, I knew that when I went to the, uh, the bridge of a major battleship on a visitation, that I knew two things with absolute certainty. I would never be handed a cold cup of coffee ever. And two, I would never learn the true state of the ship in that meeting because they, I, will not, I will not learn it. And that is true for all leaders. You know, you'll be treated with deference and, 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 um, and lots of um, you know, accolades, but you're not going to learn the entire truth from any executive group. It just doesn't happen. It's human nature. There's the hierarchical challenge. There's the fear of losing one's job. There's the fear of, um, listen, I might be speaking openly, but the person next to me, she or he may not do the same. And suddenly I'll feel like I'm on an island. And it's just it's just natural. And so, again, leaders have to say, I know that's going to happen. And so I'm going to be more probing. I'm going to be I'm going to be more willing to to hear alternative views. I want the alternative views. Um, and there are lots of stories, and some of most of them are somewhat, um, I don't think, operationally ever really happen, where CEOs stand up and you know give awards for those who actually are the most challenging to them. Frankly, I, I don't think that's realistic. This is a day-to-day, week-to-week sort of thing, and you've got to earn the trust from your colleagues, but never assume you're getting told the entire truth. It will not happen. I experienced this myself in my career, as did you, and I'd love you to share your story from the 80s with General Motors. But my own one was, I got severely punished for speaking the truth. And this was in the sports career. But then I, I, just, it's, I, I do believe it's in your DNA. If you're, if you're high on fairness, in, if you know, you gotta, you gotta call it. And I have to say, and to anybody listening who is struggling with this speaking up, you'll never ever regret a standing up for yourself or b standing up for what you think is right, it will eat you away later on in life if you don't. And it's one of the real reasons this book spoke to me so much. But you had this challenge yourself where even when you do speak the truth, it's often not well accepted, we know that but then not enacted, even when it has millions or billions of dollars on the line. This is an old story, but it, it's still true today. And it's a formative story for me. So early on in my career, uh, I was serving General Motors. Uh, this is in the, in the early 80s. And General Motors had been shocked by, um, by the introduction of the minivan uh, by Chrysler. Uh, came out of nowhere. Lee Iacocca was famous for this. Anybody can go Google it. Google it, they'll find the story. It's amazing. So at the time, GM is caught flat-footed. Uh, so they immediately say, well, we have to respond. So the first thing they do is they take their cargo van and they put passenger seats into it and they call it a minivan. Understandable, but, you know, but do it. Second thing, they go to their um, design studio and they say, create a new minivan that will be really a dominant force, a la we at GM, because at that time they had almost 40%, maybe 45% share of the U.S. market. And they designed something which, again, your, your uh, listeners would have to go and just Google dust, ban- dust buster minivan, and you'll see a picture of the Chevrolet Lumina. 
And this thing has a more glass in its in its windshield than any any vehicle I think ever. Uh, and so, in order to test this radical design, they go to and they put these um, uh, mock-ups in a big uh, con- uh, convention center, and they invite uh, consumers to come in and look at it. And these consumers came in and looked at this. And then we have you know uh, uh, sessions where we watch through through two-way mirrors for what they say, and they and they hated this minivan. I mean, they just hated it. I, one um, you know, uh, participant said, look, if I put my sunglasses on, on the dashboard and went down a hill, I'd have to wait to go back up a hill before they would return to me. And they're absolutely accurate, by the way. Um, another former history teacher said, I looked at that sea of glass and thought I was Balboa looking at the Pacific Ocean for the first time. I just So we're on the plane flying back uh, with all these engineers uh, from this and the conversation is clearly, what are we going to say to management? Because this was bad by any by any measure, it was bad. So, you know, when you left, it was in California. So by the time we got to Chicago, it was, well, you know, it really wasn't that bad. And by the time we got to Detroit, it was, you know, I think what we should just do is focus on these two or three minor things that we should probably change. And and it was just incredible that the, the sort of the rewriting of history that took place. We go and have a presentation to, to the senior management of the North American operation. And basically, it's like it, it was great. It was good. We have a few things we have to tinker with. And I and I'm aghast because they are clearly in deep trouble. Um, and it's understandable. They have two now. They have two vehicles. They're the largest uh, manufacturer out there. They have the scale of General Motors. Of course, they think they're going to win. And I you know, was a very young, uh, you know, very young consultant. I stood up and I said, I have an entirely different view based on what I heard. I think this is going to be an enormous challenge. I think this 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 particular design itself is highly challenged, and we heard that. And I think you need to rethink this. And um, you know, I remember the head of North America at the time said, "Thank you, David, for that point of view. I wish you had more uh, automotive experience to understand how naive you sound." Um, and you know, and they of course proceed. And any of your listeners can see this is one of the great great product failures of all time. They lost a whole generation to Chrysler minivans and it took a long time for them. But this is the reality of corporate America. And you can say, okay, it's 1980s, it's General Motors, just dismiss it. I would urge you not to. This has been repeated time and time again. It's such a great example. And I'm so glad you were there. And I love the way this happens in life where that happened to you. And you did not know that that would make the pages of a book you'd write in the future. Isn't that I just think that's beautiful. Like those challenges pay off. They do when you stand up for what's right. I really, really believe that David. And but you know, and there's career risk with this. And there's lots of all I mean, but but that it helped me understand, by the way, that's what consultants do really good consultants are those who speak truth. But more importantly, it was just that how challenging and how deeply, you know, um, resistant these chief engineers who knew that this was not going to work, but could not feel comfortable enough to say it. They really it was watching their personal struggle was interesting. Now, if I recall from that part you were writing about this, this is really, really relevant to our audience. So our, a lot of our audience would be chief innovation officers, uh, officers, heads of R&D working in new product development, new business model development. And one of the biggest challenges, as you know, is you are struggling to get a new idea born. And the organization, the status quo, the corporate immune system will be out to get you. So when you do get something through the filter, when you get something through the sieve, 
you end up really loving that idea. It's like the IKEA effect, the bias of the IKEA effect. You built it. This was your baby. You got it through. You battened off all these people and you get it through. And then you fall in love with the idea. And even when it's not right, you still cling to that. And there was an interesting thing, if I recall, with those R&D guys you talked about was they told you, we didn't join to do focus groups. We joined to build things. Exactly. And they were so thrilled because this, the, the design of this was radical. I mean, this, this very radical front end and this huge piece of, uh, of windshield, which was going to be give the driver this wonderful vista. Uh, and they were just taken by the technology that was required to do it, rather than ever asking the question, is it, well, you know, do, do consumers want it or like it? And, and unfortunately, um, engineers sometimes say we can do it. Designers say, look at they'll love they'll learn to love it because we love it and it's just you know it's so radical it's too new they can't appreciate it and you you suddenly convince yourself of these things because you're right you're not willing to challenge your fundamental beliefs and and that's also part of the truth is that you've just got to as you, you know always recognize that your belief is not that to be held by large populations of people sometimes so if you're a CEO who listens to this, you're going, yeah, my people won't tell me the truth. And you're pointing the finger. You got to remember when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at you. And David, I've, I've two pins. I've one with the mouth covered, the speak no evil. And then I have another one, hear no evil. Because <laughs> you say it takes two to tango. And sometimes the CEOs don't want to hear the truth. They lock themselves away, etc. So maybe we'll share this. No, this is important too, because... Um, many will say, oh, you look at, I'm open to this, please tell me. Um, and, and, uh, and, you, uh, and you find out that they say that, but when they actually get the bad, you know, bad news or news that challenges them, they react defensively. They question the, the, the motives of the individual rather than the substance of what they're saying. And so suddenly they shut it down and it becomes, you reinforce a behavior of not, let's not speak to her or him you know, directly because look what happened to Sam or Sally. Um, and, and it happens too frequently. There's an example in the book where, um, you know, an executive who really said, I am welcome to any, you know, let anything come forward, um, finds out that one of his executives uh, is in conversation with one of his more junior executives about uh, the CEO and how unwilling, uh, in this case, he is to take tough stands um, and how, he waffles uh, and how how to overcome that. And the reaction wasn't to sort of say, oh, my heavens, I missed that. I should be listening to them. His reaction was he fired the junior individual. And, you know, of course, everybody in the building knows within two hours that this has happened. And he's suddenly surprised that nobody wants to talk to him anymore. Well, you know, this is, you know, my, you know, frankly, my, my, my you know, my younger children could have figured that one out. It, it's, it's a real problem when you, so you've got to really, not just say it, you have to actually in your being want to have that input. Uh, otherwise, it, it will not happen. I love how you put this, our reflex to please and pamper leaders rather than risk upsetting them with bad news is deeply ingrained. And it's encouraged consciously or not just like you said by leaders by their actual behavior. And you say here, I love this story, Shakespeare dramatized these behaviors in King Lear. And I absolutely love this analogy. I'm not a Shakespearean scholar in any form or fashion. Uh, one of my other colleagues pointed this one out to me, so I don't mean to take credit for it in any way. But the, 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 the notion of, you know, having children 
you know, who as a as a parent, you want to hear all the great things. And then the one child who actually speaks the truth, you end up banishing, you know, it, you know, it is is something that uh, is a lesson that uh, CEOs really need to understand and listen to. Uh, and they and it's unfortunate. It's not just CEOs, all leaders. And it's of all type. We, we don't like being challenged. We don't like, um, you know, particularly when we're parents, like we, we feel like these are there's an ownership here. You know, in the story I told about the individual who fired the more junior person, this was a close confidant of his. He was, you know, he was hurt by the fact that they were sending nasty emails and wasn't being truthful. Rather than going and sitting with the individual and saying, I thought we had a relationship, speak to me directly about that, he comes and fires them. That's the, that's the King Lear effect. And so um, that's the analogy that I was trying to draw upon. I love that it reminds me of my own family. <laughs> my, my kids are 12 and nine, like I was telling you before, I had two boys. And the younger one is just like, like, just give you the truth like it is or else, you know, you do something for him. And he's kind of like, he's grateful, but he doesn't make a big deal about it. And you're kind of like fishing for compliments. You're like, kind of going, did you like what daddy did there? And he's like, going, yeah, I, I told you already. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the analogy of children is so great because they always they, they don't think about all the nuance and all they're just t- telling you the truth they're just saying hey dad yeah. you know um, my daughter would say that, that, that's an ugly shirt don't wear that you know <laughs> it's my wife who does that for me she's she's the the best mirror i ever need just straight to no empathy just bang tell you the truth and by the way yeah, it happens all the time i mean just upon my one of my first days here at harvard I, I showed up uh, to Harvard and I was wearing a lanyard with my ID on it uh, because I'd seen another faculty do that. And I thought that's, well, I thought that's how we did things here at Harvard. And I went to go see one of my old professors who was still teaching here. And I walked in, and I said to uh, hi to him. And he said, David, what, what do you take that, take that lanyard off? What are, you, what are you doing? He said, you look like a, you know, like you're a rank rookie here. Put that Put it away. We don't need to wear our credentials on around our necks. And I was thinking, what a brilliant thing to do. I mean, I could have been wearing that thing around for for days, and I looked like a silly man. He's like, no, 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 just take that thing off. It was the very first thing he said. We hadn't seen each other in thirty years. He's like, oh my god, what are you wearing that around your neck for? That's you want people to do that for you, and you know, and welcome it rather than feel like, oh my god, you know, could you says hi first? No, he, he's. He's teaching me. And it builds trust, doesn't it? Like your, your trust with him increases. Exponentially. Yeah. He's always tell you. So, and, you know, and there's many, many examples of McKinsey of people giving really good feedback and people giving bad feedback to clients as well as to individuals. And I do think it differentiates um, in life as well. <laughs> I have one to share with you. I, I was running a program for an organization and it was on having difficult conversations. And I, my fly was down, David. <laughs> 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 and for an hour, nobody said it to me. And I, I asked, I said, like, why did no? Like, I just called it out. I was like, going, why did nobody say it? And they're like, going, oh, didn't want you to make you feel bad. It's like this is about having difficult conversations. It couldn't be a better example of just what we're speaking of. But people edit themselves, right? We're all we're trying to please. We're, we're not trying, you know. And 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 it happens even in the Harvard classrooms where we have ninety three uh, MBA students, and I'll say. Look, you have to have open and direct and candid conversations, not mean spirited, but open and direct. And you have to challenge each other. And they're, they're like, oh, it takes them almost half a semester before they really understand that. You know, and I keep saying this is the safest room in the, in the world you ever be in because nobody's ever going to speak about what happens in this room. There's no social media. There's no nothing. 
just be, and you're stuck together for your lives, be open and be candid. And even then it takes some time. Yeah, it's so, it's so difficult for people, but it's it so hard. essential, isn't it? We but, need everybody but, to be but good leaders, good leaders, draw people to them and get them to do this really good ones. So you're a new leader, you're in the role, you're trying to figure stuff out, we've called out these things, David then shares some of the roadblocks. And one of them is like the hot hand fallacy, what you did before will work again for you now in the future. And you say roadblock number one is believing too much in your past successes. You share the story here of Ron Johnson. You know, Ron Johnson is, um, uh, again, I should say to Ron, who I've never, I've only been in a classroom with him, I've never met him. He's very good to let us use this as an example because he was wildly successful at Kmart um, and then again at, at Apple uh, running the, the retail operations that uh, created Apple stores that we now all go to and use. Um, that's all Ron Johnson's doing, um, at least attributed to him. And he goes to become the CEO of JCPenney, um, and he shows up, um, you know, with a few um, members of his team, and and takes over uh, JCPenney. And I think by any objective matter uh, measure, fails, uh, fails quite quite spectacularly. Not without huge challenges. Obviously, the retail environment has been changing, as we all know, with online. He has an activist, and you know, who's uh, basically uh, running the board. And he is trying to do this uh, in, a, uh, in an environment where, you know, JCPenney was very um, sort of collegially run by its former organization, the former CEO, and he didn't have time to really change out all that cultural. So he struggled. But the fact is he believed in his in so strongly in his concept of what was necessary that he not only put it in place, he did not test it. He, he put it in place across all of JCPenney units. Um, the, the concept was fundamentally flawed. Um, it, it ran against JCPenney's traditional customer base, the traditional way of people buying, and he failed. Um, and it's because nobody questioned, including himself, whether or not the, his views learned from his past behavior would work here. And they failed for really three reasons. One, he had a natural presumption about uh, how people would shop that doesn't translate to the JC customer, JC Penning customer. Bad. Two, um, he did it without any sort of testing. Um, and three, he did it because he's now the CEO and not the head of marketing. And, and it's really hard when you're the CEO and not the head of marketing because now you've got to marshal the entire organization to, towards that vision, and he failed to do that. And so he called it situational arrogance that prevented him from being able to succeed. I'll leave it to others to judge whether that was alone what it was. But there's a classic case of failure. A little postscript also. He brought several people along with him from um, Apple. Uh, and I always wondered, why didn't those people say that to Ron Johnson, who knew him well, obviously, and I'm sure were brought along to help him in this change? Why didn't they say, Ron, this is probably too risky, too fast, and not on strategy. Let's think, rethink this. And I've never understood why they would have stopped it. But again, speaking truth, they didn't even do it, even though they were brought from Apple to help him. I've never met them, but I'm assuming they could have done that. David, I, I love it. I'm going to share a little image here to tee us up for the next one. And uh, hopefully you'll have a little chuckle for yourself here. This one is stems from a story <laughs> that you tell about another one of your stories. This time it's with GM again. And this is about 
an unwillingness to acknowledge frightening realities. And the another better one, a more comical one, is that image there, <laughs> where everything around you is falling down and you're like, oh, and going, it's all fine up here in the boardroom. And right. ultimately it isn't. And this is such a common, unfortunately common aspect of decline and disruption in organizations. The GM example is much like that golfer with the forest fire behind them. Um, you know, so focused on, you know, if they, if they get the putt, they can win the game as opposed to the reality of what's about to overtake them. Uh, so the wonderful, uh, you know, metaphorical, uh, uh, you know, uh, lead in. The, the issue is um, that it's really hard sometimes when you're not being told the entire truth and you're, you're limited in your ability to have gone out and talked to lots of other people. You're focused on just your senior team and what they're telling you to sometimes see the reality of your situation. A la the forest fire that's behind the golfer. Um, in GM's case, the head of North America, um, you know, had was so driven by, in this case, the putt was, I, if I keep my market share, I will be successful in the marketplace because they traditionally had always had that. You're market share oriented. And one of the ways that he propped up, and I was propping up, uh, his market share was selling um, increasingly larger number of products to rental fleets who would keep them and rent them out, and then and then effectively GM would buy them back, or third parties would buy them back, and they go back in the market and create a secondary market for used cars. But it, that was revenue only gained for six or six or seven weeks until they were turned back in, and so it was well known to many that this was increasingly larger amounts of the total volume that was being done for some of the car units. Uh, also. Uh, they were very reliant on discounting and, and, and putting more and more inventory uh, out into the field. Um, I remember one, I was interviewing one of the uh, key um, uh, dealers in Washington. I said, tell me, how is GM doing? He said, you know, I'll tell you this, I'm just buying gravel everywhere. And I went, well, what does that have to do with GM? He says, I'm putting gravel on football fields to park the cars I'm having to buy from them. And you know you're in trouble when you're doing that. So all this by way of saying, we did the analysis as one would expect from a uh, good consultancy. And I stood, I sat with the um, the, C, uh, the head of the North American operation. I said, look at you are in serious trouble because let me just show you the numbers of what this is going to continue, if this continues to be. And his basic concept was, no, David, if I have the market share, we will be successful. And I remember saying to him at the time, I know I'm really over my skis because I'm still a young guy. I'm just at this point in time, I think I was a brand new partner. I said, I fear that this will be a conversation that will rue when you go back because you'll lose, you're going to lose your role. You're going to, you're going to be asked to step aside if these numbers come to four. And they did come to four. He was asked to step aside. And we all know that General Motors struggled in that time period. And it, frankly, it struggled in many ways since. So I'm not suggesting this was the turning point, but it was an it's an important point to say, even in the face of lots of data, lots of analysis, any number of people could have told, in this case, this gentleman that time was it was um, challenged, he ignored it all. David, there's a, a, a brilliant next one. So we're on roadblocks here to the full picture. And I thought I'd share again as a little lead in very short, this is an advertisement from the Guardian newspaper in the UK from 1986, 1987. And I thought it was just so excellent. I use it in my courses about communication. And I'd love to share it with you. So I'm going to just put it up on screen now. And I'll press play. An event seen from one point of view gives one impression. 
Seen from another point of view, it gives quite a different impression. But it's only when you get the whole picture you can fully understand what's going on. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant to share that, to bring this one to life, because many of our audience, again, work in innovation. Oftentimes, they're put into an innovation silo. It originally was developed to break down the silos, and then it becomes a silo of itself. And then you have sales not speaking to marketing. And then you have all this fragmentation of not only the people in your organization, but the information, and you cannot get a holistic picture. I, I love the example because it, it drives home the point of, you know, in many organizations, there are silos, as you described. There's, there's, we can manufacture it. Great. We, we actually have the ability to put it into the warehouses and get it out. Great. We can actually sell it because customers see the promise of this. But yet, the, very few people look across the entirety and say, does it all make sense? Um, much like the, the perspective you get when you see a, a, a pull-away shot of the that gentleman saving the man from the bricks, you know. And so the problem is because you're, we're so focused on trying to get effectiveness within the functions and efficiencies, we don't look at the bigger picture. Um, and people don't have the time for it and, and they don't ask the tough questions. Uh, there's an example in the book of a very well-known company that was highly successful uh, making, uh, uh, in this case, uh, you know, table, uh, most offices in the United States have, have machines that actually you know, use pods to make coffee. And so they're wildly successful doing this. And then the thought was, well, what else could we make in the same, with the same technology? Well, let's make um, soda. Let's make soda uh, because that, that now we go from hot to cold. And so we'll make a sort of, and indeed there was a manufacturing uh, design that said, we can create this machine. We can put carbon monoxide into the water and we can create soda. And there was a marketing group that said, oh my heavens, people would definitely would buy this. And you know, there's a, <clears throat> and there's a, uh, a financial group that says, yes, we can afford to do this. And particularly because we'll get all the big soda companies. And the fact is it, it was all being designed and there was somebody who was the product manager across the, the whole of it. And in this case, they were somebody I was speaking with and they knew things were not as they seemed. And I said, you've got to speak up. You've got to tell them that this is not true. Part of the challenges were the manufacturing was coming along slowly. It turns out this machine is large. It takes up an enormous amount of, you know, of, you know, of space in the kitchen, which people do not have. Um, third, it turns out to be very expensive. You know? And so the long story is that it didn't get understood because the product manager who was put across these things didn't have the power and influence to call the question. And it goes to the consumer show, um, you know, before the Christmas rush and it gets in ter terribly well, badly received and eventually becomes a major failure. But the, it's not the issue that it's failed. This issue is that nobody listened to the person cutting across the units. So, Nobody got the picture, the third-dimensional, faraway picture of the gentleman, you know, uh, being about to have the bricks fall on their head. That's what people need to miss. And the leadership needs to understand that that picture is important, even though they may be the more junior people in the overall process. And I think that's such a key one, because oftentimes you get uh, a leader and they're so far removed from the people in the trenches that they have no way to communicate with them. And then... 
as we'll talk about the next day, we won't have time to get there today. They're so time strapped that they have so many people dragging out of them from each different direction that they don't have time to even be present mentally, let alone physically with the person when they're actually with them. But we'll go there the next day. So we've been talking about, okay, previously to getting into the role, you get the role, then you realize, uh oh, I'm not getting all the information, etc. But what do you do about it? And David addresses this in spades within the book, you share how to move from partial to hold truths. You say here, once you understand that truth is often hidden behind ingrained habits and attitudes, it may seem very daunting to reverse that culture. And I absolutely totally get that it's nearly easier to just ignore it and go on and focus on making the put like David said earlier on, but it can be done. However, David shares some ways to get the ball rolling. And maybe at a high level, David, as a final message for this episode, will share what those ways to get the ball rolling are. We've touched on several of these uh, approaches, but just to reinforce them. Uh, the first is you, you have to, one, know that you're not getting the entire truth and find a way to delve and, and find that truth. Some CEOs, you know, create red teams and then multiple, ask multiple people to do multiple efforts. I, I find those somewhat discouraging, um, but that's certainly one approach. That's a more hard-ass approach, excuse my language, but to do it. Uh, but I think really just recognizing that you're not, you need to ask and get a more integrated view. So it's easy to do that because you can ask, in this case, the project manager for, for an integrated view. If need be, do it without the others in the room, um, you know, just because you deal with the reality that sometimes openness comes with, with fewer people in the room. Um, the, the second is ask your, you know, go and talk more to your customers and say, well, I'm glad you want this, but do you have room in your kitchen for it? I mean, you know, and there are wonderful stories of, uh, you know, of consumer packaged goods companies who are wildly successful because they actually have people live in people's homes. Well, we'll emulate that by trying to ask the tough questions. Um, and then, of course, actively sampling um, and understanding the, the product really a value yourself because people will give you lots of data. But the point is, you have to be convinced yourself. So one, really be much more thoughtful about finding ways to actually do it. You also want to reward people. Now, I'm not saying you pay for our truth, but you certainly celebrate that. And you can do that through subtle means by saying, look at, you know, uh, Sally came to me and told me of this issue. I can't tell you how great it is for all of us that we now have that view. And now Sally feels good and all the rest of them go, okay, see? Uh, she or he is really willing to hear that. And it doesn't have to be you pay for people for that or you give them some award. You just make that part of your day-to-day -day conversation. Um, another example uh, you know, of how to actually celebrate this is um, I'm now on a board where actually Roger Crone, again, speaking of Roger, actually now at every board meeting stands up and says, here's what went well and here's what went badly. I mean, he literally says, this is where I'm disappointed and what we did. How easy is that? I mean, it just changes the whole tenor of our conversation as a board because he's open and candid. You know, not too many CEOs do that. So that's another way to do it. Um, you know, uh, and I think, you know, the other is that you have to, you know, be thankful for that which you're hearing rather than being dismissive of it. Um, it's easy to say, okay, that was a tough message. Um, I'm glad you told me that. And I'm, and we'll, we'll, we'll take it under advisement. Well, that, that's as good as saying, you know, I'm ignoring you entirely and that was worthless. As opposed to saying, that's incredibly difficult for me to hear. 
it will cause us to have to rethink things. And that's a good thing. You know, I mean, you have to, you want to play that back. You have to force people to hear that you are willing to, and you're going to be positive in your reactions. So that's another way to, to do it. Um, and, you know, the final thing is that you always have to say, there's a micro and a macro view of every problem. Um, and if you focus on one at the expense of the other, you'll be in trouble. So always look at both the micro and the macro view, not just one or the other. Um, and uh, really great leaders do that uh, as a matter of course. But you can be too micro, in which case, you you know, it's like, okay, fine, you do it. I, you're you're going to make every decision. Or you could be too macro. Oh, she doesn't care. So we'll just go ahead and, and you know, and, and ignore it. Beautiful, David. We'll wrap up today's episode because we're going to come back for a part two. And in that part two, we're going to cover how do you create a nice constituency, people who are engaged and open and willing to share the hard truths. And then the second thing is, and this one's lovely, is like, do you start change management by changing management? <laughs> Huge question that's often uh, thought, thought about uh, very seldom addressed very clearly. And David definitely does that within the book. David, before we wrap up today's episode, where can people find you? I'm pretty easy to find just if you go to the Harvard website, look up, um, you know, old guy from McKinsey, Harvard, you'll see me. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's, you know, eminently easy to find me at dfubini at hbs.edu. Um, you won't remember that, but go to the Harvard faculty website. You know, just send me an email, they come right to me. I'll find you and I would enjoy hearing from you. Awesome. And I'll share that that page on the show notes as well. Don't forget, I have a copy up for grabs. But I do highly recommend no matter what type of role you're in CEO board member, or CIO chief innovation officer or in any role within an organization. Absolutely great book. The author of hidden truths what leaders need to hear but are rarely told David Fubini. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I very much enjoyed it. Nice one, man. That's brilliant. Don't forget to sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter where you will be in the hat to win a copy of David Fubini's hidden truths. Before we finish, I want to thank our sponsors, I boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling customers to move funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. I'll see you very soon.